Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. (laughs) Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother, Jonah. And we are so excited to have you hear the latest season of our nostalgia-themed podcast, How Did We Get Weird? Not only do you get to know me and my brother, you get to know the stories that made us the absolutely rad people we are today. Like you, Jonah, who's a music person and also a mental health counselor. And you, Vanessa, who is an actress, comedian, and I think you even wrote a children's book. Wow. I sure did. Check out our episodes where we've welcomed hilarious guests like our friend Andy Samberg. That's it. That's really it. And Queen Casey Wilson. I really went cart before the horse. I said, I think I have an opportunity to interview Leonardo DiCaprio. (laughs) As a high school student. Plus, legendary sisters Amber Ruffin and Lacey Lamar. You would pull the bag out and then we would eat the eat all the leftover the leftover chocolate chips which was a lot then you'd roll the oh, barrel up so to fun. up the hill and then one of us would get inside the barrel and they'd push you down and we've also had an amazing guest like mike the miz jason isbell carrie brownstein and corin tucker of slater kinney and many more and you do not want to miss out on our funny segments like change.dork <laughs> change.dork and congratulations you played yourself Congratulations, you played yourself. Listen to our podcast, How Did We Get Weird, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Oh, it was worth it. Thank you. Ooh, ooh, ooh. It's the big day, Caitlin. It's the big day. It's the big show. And it's Caitlin's birthday episode. We come to this place. We come to this podcast to celebrate oh my gosh. Caitlin Durante's birthday. And on their birthday, Thank we of so course much. cover one of their favorite movies. But first, this is the Bechtel cast. It is. Which means that... <laughs> yeah, what does it mean? I'm Jamie Loftus. <laughs> it does mean that you're Jamie Loftus. It means that I'm Caitlin Durante. And it means that we talk about movies through an intersectional feminist lens, using the Bechtel test simply as a jumping off point. Jamie, what is that? Sorry, my mouth's full of biscuit. That's okay. Well, you are the biscuit gobbler, as we've established five minutes ago. Yeah, I proudly self-identify. There's a biscuit. It's complicated. Listeners, 
there's a really gentrified biscuit place that opened down the street and I've been I've been gobbling it up. I don't feel good about it. Gobble those biscuits, Jamie. But I do get so hungry. Here's what the Bechtel test is. <laughs> and that pa- that passed. The Bechtel test. Us talking about gobbling biscuits, that passes. It's true. Because <laughs> biscuits are famously genderless. Yeah. Um, so the Bechtel test is a media metric created by queer cartoonist Alison Bechtel, sometimes called the Bechtel-Wallace test. Uh, lots of versions of this test. It was originally made as a bit, as a joke for Alison Bechtel's amazing comic collection, Dykes to Watch Out For. Mm-hmm. A lot of versions of the test. Here's the one we use. We require that there be two characters of a marginalized gender with names speaking to each other about something other than a man for more than two lines of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, and I'm just like spitballing here, there's movies that could be three hours long uh-huh. and not pass this test it's true but yeah that's the one we use and then we also use a more important metric which is the one that we made up oh. called the nipple scale perfect flawless i don't know what i would want the nipple scale to be called if we started the podcast today i feel like we could have punched it mm, disagree <laughs> i if, if we had to do it all over again mm. that's the one thing of no regrets <laughs> no regrets <laughs> that i keep <laughs> Well, happy birthday, Caitlin. It's your birthday. It is my birthday. And as such, I have selected one of my, a a recent favorite, but one of my favorite movies, RRR, which is a Telugu language movie from India. So it's Tollywood, not a Bollywood film that I saw last year so it it was released in march 2022 Mm. it had a release in the u.s and kind of by word of mouth it grew in popularity i saw it in july Mm -hmm. or maybe june or july of 2022 a friend of mine was like what you haven't seen rrr you'd love it Mm -hmm. so i went to the theater i mean it is a, a romp it is it is a a raw an r r r romp yeah a raw 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 romp it's a romp 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 and i was in not a f- super full theater cuz it was just sort of like a regular screening but it was a rowdy crowd the best way to experience this movie is in a theater with a crowd who is cheering and clapping mm. and that's how i saw it the first time and then i've since seen it six times in theaters total often in q a settings right yes the director with the director in like huge theaters you know i think the biggest one was a like a 1500 seat theater in downtown los angeles i saw it at the chinese theater a few months before that we saw it on the west side at some point yeah we saw it in santa Mm. monica because caitlin did and I I enjoy the movie, mm. but you d- dragged every single person in your expanded universe to this movie <laughs> to a screening at one point or another. It's and true. And if not to a screening, then to your personal home. Where you, yes, it is where true. Where you and Sammy would show it to people. <laughs> you were... You were working full-time unpaid. You were in a full-time unpaid intern for the movie RRR. This movie really spoke to me because, and we'll talk about its many issues later on, but there's also, I think, a lot to love about this movie. I think probably most people are at least familiar with it if they haven't yet seen it. It is on Netflix. Uh, The version on Netflix is the Hindi dub, um, so it's not in its original language. 
And then it won a Golden Globe and an Oscar for Best Original Song. Yeah. So I think it's like on people's radars um, for the most part. If you're, if you're, I think even if you're like a casual movie fan, this has probably come across your desk at some point. Right. But yeah, it, it did feel like kind of a um, rare, and we talk about this with our guest in a bit, uh, and I guess for we're, we're formatting our episode a little bit different today, where mm-hmm. most of the discussion will be with Caitlin and myself. And we have an amazing guest coming in later to give us more historical context. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because there are very few Indian movies that cross over into the West in the way RRR has. Right. And I think, honestly, like in preparing for this episode and watching this movie through the Bechdel test lens or Bechdel cast lens rather um it's just recurred I mean it's I know so little about Indian film Mm -hmm. and yeah I mean I don't know it it made me it made me think made me think and also RRR is such a fun movie and if you don't know any historical context for it maybe watch it once without knowing and then listen to the second half of the episode and then go back and and watch it again and watch responsibly but it was really like because you insisted (laughs) making it sound (laughs) like I was under duress but I did it was a it was a carload of Bechtel cast luminaries because it was you and me went Mm -hmm. and we're the hosts of the show it's true there's no doubt about it there's never been any others. <laughs> and then also guests Sammy Junio mm-hmm. and Catherine Leon were also with us. Catherine and I had not seen it before. You and Sammy had seen it maybe 50 billion times at it's, that point. Yeah, that sounds right. And so um, it was exciting. I mean, like watching people react to the movie in real time. And like, I mean, it was a bit scary <laughs> at times. Sure. But, you know, it was very We Come to This Place vibes. I really liked it. It's a movie that feels like a movie. Yes. I truly, I'd never seen a, I mean, I'd seen Indian movies before, but never like a big epic the way that this is. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's kind of interesting for Western audiences because we're just like not used to it to have a movie that changes genres several times. Right. When like it's almost it's like a, a really pleasant creative jump scare where you're like oh I guess you could just start singing too like and I know mm-hmm. that that is like pretty commonplace in a lot of uh, Indian movies mm-hmm. and also there's such a huge diverse film community because there's so many languages right. so there's all of these different industries um, but I know in the east that that is a more common sort of film filmic language right but for a crowd full of people in Santa Monica they're like oh my god it's a rom-com oh my god it's an action movie oh my god it's Uh, like a buddy comedy yeah (laughs) it's like there's so much happening yeah i looked up the budget for this movie what would you guess the budget for this movie was i don't have to guess i already know oh shit (laughs) well it's the highest um budget movie i believe ever made in india i think that's true yes but it it made me laugh at hollywood movies because they're they can be such flops where it's like the last Star Wars movie cost like $275 million mm-hmm. is like running on absolute fumes. Babu Frick, truly the only <laughs> shock of life that exists in that movie. Yes. Meanwhile, this movie is on all cylinders the whole fucking time. And it was $72 million yeah. USD. It really makes you wonder what Hollywood is spending money on with these <laughs> like, where? wildly inflated budgets. I hope they paid... Babu Frick, a hundred million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> the puppet. Yeah, and it's the third highest-grossing Indian film 
worldwide and the second highest grossing Telugu film worldwide. The highest grossing one being another of this director's movies, Bahubali. Oh, shoot. I don't know if it's part one or two because there's like the beginning and then the conclusion. All this to say that um, this is a a huge movie globally. Mm. Like you said, Jamie, one of the few movies from India that crossed over and had and has like a, a huge following in audience in the US. It also has a huge following in Japan. And I'm kind of speculating here, but uh, I think something that might account for that is that, uh, and I'm not super familiar with uh, a lot of anime, but mm. everyone I know who does know a lot about anime and who has also seen RRR, they're like, yeah, RRR is just an anime film, like a live action anime. Oh, interesting. So okay. uh, I think that might account for uh, at least partly why it was so successful in Japan. And yeah, so it's like this global phenomenon. I mean, this is the kind of movie where it's like, there's fucking something for truly everyone. everyone. It's like, if you're not loving this movie, just like wait 20 minutes. Like, and (laughs) probably something totally different that you might like a lot better will probably be happening at that point. It's pretty like, it's pretty amazing. I really hope that... um, I mean, I know that there are, there are, well, actually, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I don't know, but I I am very pro. And now we're doing this, but it still feels like it's all cohesive enough. There are some times where you're like, hmm, that guy just changed rather quickly. Like, (laughs) right. I do think that there is a moment in the, and this isn't even a criticism, but there's a moment in the movie where Beam goes from being such a doofus to like the most bloodthirsty man in the world mm-hmm. he has a good half hour of just full-on doofus and then he's like actually now i'm I'm hard as fuck for the rest of the movie and you're like yeah all right his love for jenny made multitude. him doofy he's kind of like hillary duffing a little bit <laughs> i thought he's kind of just like oh, oh like you know mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> that's my and then he's like wait a minute i remember the mission that i'm on i have to save a little girl and then yeah he, he does that I mean, I would love to see Hillary Duff on a rescue mission mm. movie. It's just not what it's just not yet. At the time of this recording, Hillary Duff has not headlined a uh, blockbuster action franchise. But but never say never. Well, that's because we have yet to write it. She, oh, I I mean, my unproblematic queen. I think hard to say. Mm. I think as far as we know, haven't heard a bad word about her. I just know she's like married a lot of hockey players oh. which i think is just like a fun habit uh, <laughs> good for her just not the sort of thing you would think would happen more than once anyways true um okay so let's take a quick break and then come back and do the recap yeah let's do it okay we'll be right back tax day is coming oh no but if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. I don't understand what the big fat ones are. You don't put those inside of you, do you? I mean, you do? Yes. This is a show about women. 
Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European Political Systems class at Baruch College. Woo! Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it. That's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Beauty Translated Season 3 is coming soon with... What? A second host? I'm Carmen Laurent, and this season I am joined full-time by world-renowned Janie Danger. Janie, what are we talking about in season three? We're talking about life, Carmen. Beauty Translate is about the many fragmented lives spreading across this rich tapestry of the trans experience. Janie, this sounds like an all-new format. Podcasting 2 is finally here. Thoughtful perspectives on current events... Stunning, sexy, bold interviews with an all-star lineup of guests. And the all-new Beauty Translated Love Line, the first ever. Be a part of the Beauty Translated Transcendental Podcasting Experience by calling our helpline at 678-561-2785. For any problem you may have, we will do our best to make it worse. Listen to Beauty Translated Season 3 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye. And we are back. Uh, a little context before I even begin the recap. Mm-hmm. So this movie is loosely based on two Indian freedom fighters who I don't think ever collaborated in real life. But basically, this movie like re envisions history and is like, what if they did collaborate and what if they were best friends? And also, is a very, it's funny. I don't, again, I, I don't think I've ever seen a movie framed this way precisely, where there is a lot of, and we talk about this a little bit with our guest as well, but um, there's a lot at the beginning of like, Hey, this is these are real people, but the story is not real. So like you cannot get upset and you can't right. be mad and you can't see me and you can't yell at me because it's not it's not real. It's made I made it up. Mm-hmm. It's real people, but I made it up. Right. Okay? And you're like it almost like I don't know, not to keep I just love to compare things because I'm judgmental. <laughs> um but it almost reminded me but this like doesn't happen in Inglorious Bastards, but it almost mm-hmm. feels like an inglorious bastards level of like for sure none of this shit happened yeah i didn't i i honestly didn't look in to see if these two people had ever collaborated beam and raju but i also know that it's like a very like overly simplistic um, almost like a mythic view of these figures versus being super based in their actual politics or right. critical of any of their political legacies um, which we'll talk about later in the episode. But yeah, it's like, I was honestly surprised to see that they were using actual historical figures for this because it feels so 
like mythic i don't know right yeah because it takes again these two real life indian revolutionaries aluri sita ramaraju and komaram beam and envisions them as superheroes basically right so and especially after doing some research and speaking with our guest this movie is also very centered on hindu figures and mm -hmm. is pretty exclusionary of Muslim figures, which is something that we talk about in our interview, because I think that a lot of Westerners who just like who went to this movie and got fucking pumped, like we don't all have that context. So if you don't have that context, mm -hmm. don't feel bad. But you know, I certainly didn't the first time I watched it and had to do a lot of my own just sort of research and digging. Yeah, to learn about um, just a lot of things regarding Indian history, the current political climate of India, and how this movie mm -hmm. fits into all of that. And that's something, yeah, we'll get into later. Yeah. Yet another way that the American schooling system <laughs> failed us. I don't think I learned anything about India in school for the most part. Honestly. Outside of British colonization. That's all I, I knew about. I mean, when I was a kid, my major frame of reference for India and Indian culture came from watching movies and many of those movies yeah. were horribly racist such as indiana jones and the temple of doom mm -hmm. or they were told from a colonizer's perspective like i watched the little princess a lot and oh, right yeah uh, i mean we're we're exposed to so much colonizer perspective in media and then also even with I feel like I keep foreshadowing this interview because this isn't our normal format. Right. But but also with RRR, it's like RRR is very anti-colonial and anti-imperial mm -hmm. on its face, but also excludes a lot of context that it's like not quite as radical as it appears. Right. And so yes. it's so, I don't know, I think we've been, um, we also listeners you'll know that we recently covered the woman king mm -hmm. and so we've just been like covering a lot of like loosely historical epics recently that are obviously going to influence people's views of the time and the people that are being discussed in the movie i mean and even for us watching rrr for the first time last year it gave us kind of a skewed view of mm -hmm. um of i mean a lot of different issues and so i i just i don't know I don't know what to say. I just it's it's a very <laughs> tricky problem because it's like it shouldn't be the job of movies to educate you, but it's also like willfully kind of ignorant to say like, well, I don't know. I don't I'm I'm just I'm just a creative goofy goof messing mm -hmm. around and you're like, well, but but you also kind but, of have a responsibility to represent things responsibly right and it doesn't mean that every movie has to be a documentary like but mm -hmm. i i don't know uh complicated ongoing discussion i'm sure we'll get to the bottom of it and the changes <laughs> will be permanent yeah and we will fix society because of it <laughs> surely this isn't an unknowable question <laughs> anyways so, uh, let's talk okay so for this first chunk we are going to be talking about the movie and the story and then we will return to the historical context because otherwise my brain will explode yes so here's the recap. The movie is very long. It's not as long as Titanic. No. It's 10 minutes shorter. 
But they and at the theater they give you a uh, they give you an intermission, which I think is so fun. It's I nice. love that. Yes, ooh, felt good. Um, so the movie is very long, and I'm going to leave out some details and characters. Uh, but this is the gist of it. Mm-hmm. We open on a village in the Adilabad forest in India. It's the 1920s. The Gond people who live in the village are playing reluctant host to Governor Scott and his wife, Lady Buxton. Whose name is Kathy, too? Yeah. I was like, Kathy. Oh, wow, I'm sensitive to Kathy slander, but this Kathy is um, the worst Kathy in the world. She's really bad. Also, Governor Scott makes it seem like his last name is Scott, but it's Scott Buxton. So Scott is his first name. So that would be if people were like, oh, Governor Jamie. That's so weird. President Joe. Yeah. What? But everyone calls him Governor Scott. So that's <laughs> great. his name. So I don't know. they are British imperialist colonizers. Mm-hmm. A young girl, Malay, is painting skin art on Lady Buxton. She's singing a song. And Lady Buxton decides that she wants to keep Malay. So they abduct her from the village. Her mother is obviously crying and devastated. That first, I mean, yeah, it's absolutely brutal. She's kidnapped. She's kidnapped right in front of her. And then her her mom, I I thought the first time I saw the movie that her mother was was killed. Mm. But fortunately, she's not killed. Uh, But she was, I mean, yeah, in the opening sequence, there is a young girl who is abducted and another woman who is beat brutally. Yes. So right out the gate. It's very intense. Also, I just wanted to shout out the the young actor who plays Molly's name is Twinkle Sharma, which is my favorite wow, name I've ever heard. I love that. Like Twinkle. Twinkle. I love it. I love it. I love her. Mm. We'll continue to follow this young star's career. We sure will. So we see this uh, devastating opening sequence. Then we cut to the outskirts of Delhi, where we meet Rama Raju, played by Ram Charan a police officer working for the British government who is tasked with arresting a protester. We then see a long sequence of him beating his way through a crowd of hundreds of protesters and eventually reaching and arresting the guy. And it's like, it is, (laughs) it is why it's, it's wild. It It is really, you, it's hard to describe how many things happen because so many things happen yeah if this Um, if we didn't make this clear yet this movie is like everything is dialed up to an 11 yes the action sequences the there's also almost constant music happening and like and it's big music yeah big epic music (laughs) as musicians the music big the music is big (laughs) we are scholars um it's one of my favorite scores of all time. It's such a beautiful arrangement of music. Mm-hmm. But yeah, everything is just like cranked all the way up in this movie. There's no subtlety whatsoever. Everything is just like there's no boom, boom, boom. There's no rest. Uh, yeah. So if something sounds really intense, it is. That's yeah. what it's like. <laughs> uh, but yeah, huge, huge fight scene to establish the, the strength and will of Rom. Right. And also that he is working for the British at the beginning of the movie. Yes. And we will come to understand Rom's particular motivation for being an officer later on. And even though he like accomplishes this like 
bananas feat of like beating his way through this crowd and arresting this person, he is still not promoted to special officer, which uh, upsets him so much that he punches a hole in a punching bag um, drama because he really wants to be special officer for again, reasons we will understand later. Then we see a meeting where this guy, Edward, who is Governor Scott's like right-hand man, he is being advised to return Malay, the girl who was taken from the village, because there is a man from her tribe who will stop at nothing to hunt down her captors and find her. Ooh, and then there's a really thrilling intro shot Unlike anything you've oh, ever seen. Just, oh. Oh, Beam's uh, intro shot. It's really good. Yes, we meet Kamaram Beam, played by N.T. Rama Rowe Jr., a.k.a. N.T.R. Jr., uh, while he's chasing wolves and tigers in the jungle to capture them for reasons that will also become clear later. And then Beam heads to Delhi where he and his brother Lachu and a couple of their friends are trying to figure out how to get into the palace to rescue Male. They notice this woman, Jenny, who lives in the palace, and she seems nice. <laughs> so Jenny's whole thing is, every, I mean, and again, it's like part of this really broad storytelling of, mm-hmm. of like, she is the one British nice. She's the nice colonizer. <laughs> yeah. We like her. Right. Why? Okay. You're like, whatever. Um, uh, yes. No, we like her. She's Governor Scott's niece, but sometimes she's like, hey, stop that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's literally the extent of her allyship is mm-hmm. hey cut that out don't don't do it yeah that's how we meet her she's saying hey cut that out yeah when um an officer is beating a man for no reason she says hey hey cut that out yes and then so beam is like awuga who's that yeah. she's pretty and she's nice and they figure that if they can befriend her she could be their ticket into the palace mm-hmm. meanwhile Edward and Lady Buxton are like, hmm, I guess we should be worried about this guy who is going to come for the girl, but we also know nothing about him, his name, what he looks like, anything like that. But whoever is able to capture this man will be promoted to special officer. So Rom is like, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. I want to be special officer. So he and his uncle figure that this guy will probably be going to revolutionary meetings. Mm -hmm. So they go to one such meeting and sure enough, they meet Beam's brother Lachu. And so Ram and his uncle pretend to be Lachu's ally, but Lachu figures out that Ram is an undercover police officer. So he runs, there's a chase and Lachu escapes into a huge crowd nearby a train is like leaking oil everywhere it explodes and derails and there's a little boy in the middle of the water he's fishing it's like the stakes are always like a million sky high (laughs) this little kid is gonna explode if yeah and beam don't become friends right now (laughs) right so what happens is there's this little boy who's about to die no one seems to want to like risk their life to save him except for Beam and Rom. So they team up 
not realizing that the other one is their enemy, they save the boy. And this is the beginning of them becoming best friends because we get this montage of something that's usually reserved for like falling in love, like falling in love, Uh you know, but it's just like them having a fun time together. They're eating they're going on little day trips oh they're riding horses and motorcycles oh they're frolicking through fields they're oh they're playing tug of war it's pretty nice oh beam is doing squats with rom on his shoulders mm-hmm. also while this is happening there's a song playing called dosti and the lyrics are like wow it's pretty wild that these two guys have become friends and that they don't know that they're actually enemies this is probably going to end in bloodshed and betrayal. Huh. And then we're like, hold on. What? Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. I, <laughs> I do. I do love, and I know that this isn't this habit, but it's just like the exposition montage was really delivering for me. I loved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like a Greek chorus kind of thing. Yeah. Cause also this movie is like a Greek tragedy. It's just, it's everything. Yeah. So one day, Rom helps Beam meet Jenny. We will talk about this meet cute later. <laughs> There's no time. It's egregious. Yeah. Look, this movie is a lot of things. Particularly interested in women? Nope. It is not. But basically, the movie becomes a rom-com for a while. And like a half hour or so, yeah. Beam meets Jenny and spends the afternoon with her. And even though they don't speak the same language, they hit it off and she invites him to an upcoming party. So Beam and Rom get all dressed up and go to this big fancy party in a scene that was giving me, because there are some Titanic parallels, Mm. but there's a scene where like Rom is giving Beam a little makeover and like putting him in a suit because he's like, what are you going to wear to the party? And Beam is like this. And he's like, no, you have to wear a suit. And it's very much like Molly Brown being like, Jack, it what is. are you going to wear to dinner? And he's you like, shine up like a new penny. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, that was that was very sweet. And then they go to the party and they look great. Oh, they look so great. And now they're at the big colonizer party. And yes. we're about to have a dance off. This is the iconic Oscar winning song. Yes, um, because there's this British guy at the party who's super racist. And he's like, you don't know anything about art or finesse or dance. And they're like, um, have you ever heard of Natu? And then they do the Natu Natu song and dance and they win an Oscar about it. Or rather, M.M. Kiravani does because he's the one who composed the music for the film. That scene is so um, just exciting. It's yeah. so good. And also, especially like, I don't know, seeing it for the first time, you don't see it coming like you're like oh this is going to be like a rom-com comedy of manners more stuff with like beam and jenny but then it's like no it's a huge dance number Mm -hmm. it's it's gigantic it's just like so incredible it's my favorite scene no contest it rocks it's the best jenny also loves it and she's like wow beam it was so cool when you danced do you want to come to the palace with me So he goes to the palace where he finds Molly and she's locked up behind bars. She's treated as a prisoner and Beam is like, I can't rescue you now, but don't worry, I'll come back for you. Mm -hmm. So he and his friends plan their siege of the palace. But oh no, Rom has captured 
Lachu and he's like, where's your brother? Still not realizing that the man who Rom is looking for is his own best friend, Beam. <gasps> then we cut to Rom's home village where we meet his lady love, Sita. Mm. And all of the people are like, when is Rom coming back? He's been gone for years. And she's Rom's like, a flop. <laughs> he's a flop and he doesn't even remember you. And she's like, I don't know. No, but Sita is like, she's like christ-like in her mm. faith and patience in her fiance <laughs> like and uh i mean i yeah. know like ev- everyone in this movie is a huge star but i think she in particular i want to make sure that i'm saying her name right alia bot mm. she's like a huge huge star mm-hmm. and i feel like she gets like the star reveal shot when she's because she you turn around and then there's like a pause for applause um and she's great. I just, yeah. I just wish that we had more. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I. Uh, I just. I was like, wow, she's so virtuous. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> she's really just sort of passively waiting around for her fiance. Yeah, I was like, wow. If I was Sita, I would be getting a nosebleed fucking daily, being like, probably like walking around, being like, he's probably dead. Like, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna move on and kiss someone else. Oh God, that's what that would be me. That see, we're different. I would be walking around having a panic attack. <laughs> um, but she's I'd be like, like, oh, you've been gone for three days. Well, it's time to <laughs> move on, find another <laughs> lover. I feel like, but she's doing neither of those things. She's just like. No, I believe everything is great because he's the greatest and he, and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, he's probably cheating on me. Mm. Mm. <sighs> wow. Well, I'm stuck back here in flop town. There. <laughs> um, so back in the city, uh, Lachu throws a poisonous snake onto Rom and he gets bitten. And so Rom is like stumbling around and dying. Beam finds him and saves his life and then reveals his true identity to Rom and Ram is still like actively dying so he can't do anything about it but he's like oh my god my best friend is the guy who I've been hunting down this whole time what do I do Mm -hmm. and then he recovers because Beam has saved him and he's punching his punching bag some more and he's upset Um, (laughs) then it's the night of this big celebration to honor Governor Scott which is when Beam and his friends unleash an attack so they can rescue Malé they crash into the party and let a bunch of animals loose, including that tiger from the beginning. There's just like utter chaos as all these animals are running around. It is. Ooh. And another, I was like, because we, like Hollywood movies, have so many badly CGI'd animals. These are well CGI'd animals. They look good. They look pretty good. I would say it's not the best I've seen. I mean, no CGI animal looks amazing, but like it's certainly except assumed, for Paddington. It's <clears throat> I don't. I, <laughs> we can't get into this today. I think Paddington <laughs> looks a little scary sometimes, um, but um, ridiculous. But I mean, it's certainly doing donuts around like the Lion King reboot and shit like that. Oh where you're like, oh, yeah. like you can't look at it. Horrifying looking. Yeah. So all this chaos is happening, but before Beam can reach Male, Rom shows up to arrest him. And Beam is like, what the fuck? You're a cop? You're my enemy? Mm. And then they fight each other for a long time. They're beating each other up. And then it culminates in Beam being captured. 
which is where we get the intermission or the interval. Yes. Then Rom gets promoted to special officer because he captured Beam, Mm -hmm. just like he always wanted. And then we see a flashback with Rom's backstory. So when Rom was a child, his father was training their whole village to fight back against the British, Mm -hmm. but they don't have real weapons. So the reason that Rom wanted to be a special officer so badly is that it would give him access to a lot of guns, which he would basically like steal and distribute among his village. And he had made this promise to his father that he would supply everyone in the village with a gun because one day while Rom is still a child, the British army raids their village and Mm -hmm. kills Rom's whole family. So he sees like his mother and his little brother and his father killed in front of him. It's horrible. And it's also very, um, mythic in the way it's presented as well for sure yeah back to the present rom is feeling very conflicted because he wants to help his people and his village but he realizes he's hurting people along the way including his new best friend then there's a scene where rom has to flog beam publicly And Governor Scott makes everyone come to watch because he wants to make an example of Beam. And during this beating, Beam sings a song that empowers the crowd to riot and revolt against all the British soldiers. After which, Rom realizes he needs to help Beam escape especially after Beam is sentenced to death by hanging. So Rom orchestrates this rescue mission for Beam and Malay, and they successfully get away, though Beam doesn't know that Rom helped him. He still thinks that Rom is his enemy. Mm-hmm. So then Beam and Malay go into hiding because the entire British military is out looking for them, and they happen to cross paths with Sita, uh, Rom's lady love, <laughs> who... <laughs> tells Beam about Rom's grand plan to become a special officer so that he can supply his village with weapons so they can revolt against British colonialism, but that he kind of lost his way and betrayed his best friend, but then he got caught and now he's going to be executed. And Beam is like, damn, okay, he was helping me. I have to go save him. So Beam goes to the barracks where Rom is being held prisoner breaks him out. There's another like extended fight sequence where they're fighting their way through the British soldiers with Rom on Beam's shoulders because his legs were badly beaten. Mm -hmm. They escape the barracks and go into the woods. More British soldiers come. There's another long fight sequence where Rom and Beam kill all of them. Beam is throwing a motorcycle around. Rom is firing arrows with grenades attached to them. Yeah, and at this point, um, as we'll talk about in a bit, Rom looks like the mythic way that Rom is presented. And like, there's... Or no, this is a little bit before that happens, right? So after they escape the barracks, Beam, uh, because he knows medicine, he treats... Rom's wounds and then there's like these like orange flags nearby this place of worship uh so he like takes the flags and the bow and arrow from this like Rama god statue and then basically styles 
Ram to look like this Hindu god. Mm -hmm. And then they fight the people in the woods. And then they are like, all right, bitch, it's time to kill Scott. So they head to Governor Scott's palace. They steal a bunch of guns for Ram's village. They destroy the palace and kill Lady Buxton and Governor Scott. And they kill, and it's a great plant and payoff moment when they kill Governor Mm. Scott because there was this whole long evil speech that he seems to make all the time all the time about the value of a bullet yes um which you can imagine i thought that that was kind of a fun touch of like most fucking evil colonial blowhards like that have like one speech they know how to give but then they're always like ha like god but so anyways they (laughs) give the speech to him and then they fucking yeah kill him boing boing it's very cathartic it is very, very exciting. Um, and if you have no context for the rest of the movie, you're like, wow, this is a radical movie. Right. Um, <laughs> and then you read a book and then you're like, oh, oh wait. No, it's not. Uh, but it's still a good moment. It's a good moment. Yes, indeed. So then having defeated the villain, Beam and Rom return home. Rom is reunited with Sita. Jenny is there for some reason. Male is returned to her mother. And the movie ends with a big song and dance number that pays tribute to a bunch of Indian revolutionaries. Although, Very as specific we will talk ones, about, there's a lot of omissions. Yes. And um, the director, um, Azaz Rajmuli, is in the conclusion. Like, he's in the yeah. final scene. And so it's like this fourth wall break that is sort of like stating what the thesis of the movie was which is I guess when you think about it a little bit pretty nationalistic Um, Uh and then it's like not only is that there's like the big thesis song but also the director of the movie like joins in Mm -hmm. Um, which again I wouldn't like I wouldn't hate that if Martin Scorsese started doing that (laughs) at the end he comes out he's like what'd you think yeah awesome (laughs) <laughs> and then we'd be like, yes, clap, clap, like, cheer, cheer. Woo. I love it. It's like those awkward, um, I feel like it's only happened since movie theaters have been open, but every once in a while you'll, you'll go see a movie and then it's just like Margot Robbie being like, hi, thanks for coming to Babylon at the movie theater. Uh, <laughs> enjoy the movie. And you're like, what the fuck was that? Yeah. <laughs> Why did you do that? Just, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like we know it's, i mean in the same way that why is nicole kidman doing an advertisement for the theater that you're already in oh. and about to see it's for a the movie culture it's, really, it's for the culture and we come to this place for that culture but those little <sighs> blips that are like barely produced and clearly in the middle of a press junket day and they look like they want to die i'm like this is not getting me excited for the movie i forget there was like a director too that was like welcome back to them and you're like oh my god <laughs> just start the movie <laughs> yeah enough <laughs> yes um so let's right. take well that's rrr yes and let's take another break and we'll come back to discuss i don't understand what the big fat ones are you don't put those inside of you do you i mean you do? Yes. This is a show about women. Okay, so I just reapply my lip gloss after eating a delicious lunch. We are headed back now to European political systems class at Baruch College. Woo! 
finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. That's it, that's actually the name of the show. It's not hosted, not narrated, we're just dropping into a woman's world. It's like reality TV, on the radio. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Beauty Translated Season 3 is coming soon with, what? A second host? I'm Carmen Laurent, and this season, I am joined full-time by world-renowned Janie Danger. Janie, what are we talking about in Season 3? We're talking about life, Carmen. Beauty Translated is about the many fragmented lives spreading across this rich tapestry of the trans experience. Janie, this sounds like an all-new format. Podcasting 2 is finally here. Thoughtful perspectives on current events. Stunning, sexy, bold interviews with an all-star lineup of guests. And the all-new Beauty Translated Love Line, the first ever. Be a part of the Beauty Translated Transcendental Podcasting Experience by calling our helpline at 678-561-2785. For any problem you may have, we will do our best to make it worse. Listen to Beauty Translated Season 3 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. Bye. Hi, this is Shannon Doherty, host of the new podcast, Let's Be Clear with Shannon Doherty. You may know me from, let's see, 90210, Charmed, Mallrats, Heather's probably also know me from my stage four cancer diagnosis and sharing that journey with so many of you. There's something so authentic about a podcast. It's me connecting, me talking raw in the moment. That's what my goal is to give you, to talk about why I feel that cancer to a certain extent is a gift, what my responsibilities are as a person with cancer, because I think that there's something so much bigger than me. And to be honest, I'm still trying to find out what that is. And maybe together, we'll find it. It's going to be a wild ride. So I hope that you all tune in. Listen to Let's Be Clear with Shannon Doherty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back. And we are about to include our segment that we did with our special guest, who we'll introduce in a moment, but we just wanted to kind of give a little bit more context for the production mm-hmm. of the movie. So it was written and directed by S.S. Rajamuli, a.k.a. S.S.R. Um, so screenplay by S.S.R., story by Vijayendra Prasad, who is S.S.R.'s His dad, dad, who they collaborate a lot with. Okay, fathers and sons. Fathers. Yeah, and... Um, <laughs> So SSR, look, hot topic these days. He's a Nepo mm-hmm. baby, folks. Mm-hmm. Um, his dad is a very well-regarded screenwriter in India who's been working since the 80s, I believe. Mm. And now they very often will collaborate together, including on this. Correct. Um, so sometimes movies are about fathers and sons. 
including this one. Mm-hmm. Other times, movies are made by, by fathers and sons. And often they are made for fathers and sons. So. I, those are kind of the, those tend to be who movies are made for. So, yeah. uh, you know, good for you guys, you fuckos. <laughs> uh, but no, very, very famous, um, not just director, but from a famous uh, movie family. Yes. Similarly, um, the two main stars, Ram Charan and NTR Jr., are also from like acting dynasties. Yes. So. Well, as is um, the actor who plays Sita. Right. Like, there's so much. I mean, it's this is just entertainment in general, but mm-hmm. and how power works. Um, right. <laughs> but yeah, we, we just because we talk about it in the guest segment as if you already know who uh, made the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, what you need to know is that S.S. Rajamouli is a very successful film director who collaborates frequently with his father his politics uh he doesn't like to talk about politics Mm -hmm. which usually means something and um (laughs) and he makes these i mean especially in this phase of his career it seems like he makes big big blockbuster movies for sure and with that let's bring on our guest who is a writer and critic you've seen their bylines in vox Panel by Panel, Polygon, among others. And they were the author of a particular piece in Vox that we found and really loved entitled RRR is an incredible action movie with seriously troubling politics. It's Radesh Babu. Hello. 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 Thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So it's our, you... our pleasure. Oh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> I feel um, like I'm contributing. You, uh, um, yes. Um, Tell us your just kind of general thoughts on the film RRR. What's your relationship with it? Yeah, so the film is, you know, the latest entry by the film, South Indian filmmaker from the Tollywood industry, which is, you know, the Telugu language speaking cinema industry of India. Mm-hmm. It's the latest film by the biggest filmmaker of that industry, who is now also India's biggest filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And I grew up with his films like... I think I, I remember watching his first movie as a kid uh-huh. and I, I've kind of always known his films like I watched everyone as it came out because like my father would make me watch them and so they were like a thing that I always pretty much knew and so it's been a weird interesting experience to watch like the guy your dad talks about at your home suddenly become like the guy everybody and their mom talks about mm-hmm. you know uh-huh. globally it's kind of a weird experience but it's been interesting so this is the latest film he's made and it's kind of like the biggest explosive version of what he does and my relationship to it is it's complicated is definitely the word i would use because it's a film that is a great big spectacle that works as a big action spectacle but is also reflective of all the flaws and like the limitations of the filmmaker and the kind of space it emerges from and like so there's a weird tension there that is kind of like yeah, this is fun, but like, I remember walking out of the theater. I had a great time at the theater. I went to watch it with my dad and it was like, mm-hmm. it was a blast to watch. But I, I sat there with that knot in my chest throughout. And like, even as I walked out, I was like, there was that knot. And you know, until I actually sat down and wrote it, wrote about it, it was kind of like, it was a weird experience where I just had to untangle that knot and kind of like think about it. So that's kind of where even writing about it came from. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that that's so 
because this was very much my entry point to his catalog, um, reading your work and, and others work on just their relationship with this director in addition to this movie and sort of all of the baggage that comes with it yeah. is so interesting because I think like as you have witnessed, it's sort of like in Western movie culture, it's like, oh, you know, it's like a secret. Like, oh, you've seen this movie that is one of the hugest movies in the world. But here it's still sort of relegated yeah. to like really enthusiastic letterboxed users filling a movie theater on the West Side. Um, and so honestly, when I first saw this movie, I did not know that the story was rooted in any sort of yeah. political ideology at all until I read your work. Mm -hmm. And just to speak to your kind of complicated relationship with the movie, that's also like so many of the movies we cover on this podcast, especially ones that we grew up with or have some kind of nostalgic attachment to or yeah. love in any way, we sort of have to reconcile that like, yeah. oh yeah, it was a really entertaining movie to watch, but oh no, there's all these yeah. things <laughs> that you have to unravel. Art isn't always what you want to be, and that's kind of eternal struggle. For sure. So we've been kind of hinting at this sort of political and cultural context that, yeah. again, if you're not pretty intimately familiar with already, which, like Jamie, I was not either. I only, I mean, I of course know of the caste system in India, but I don't know, or I didn't know really any of the nuances of it. I didn't, um, there's just a lot of things about it that I didn't fully yeah. comprehend. Yeah. And also it was only very recently that I learned about the far right uh like yeah. hindu centric uh government that yeah. exists in india right now and how that informs yep. quite a bit of media and like there's a lot of like yeah. propaganda and a lot of people are calling rrr like hindu yeah. casteist propaganda so yeah. and this is what your piece the the writing that you've done about this movie is uh largely about that so we're just curious kind of your thoughts on all that so regarding the casting you know the guy in get out who's the white guy in get out who's like i would have voted for obama a third time or whatever yeah yeah it, it, it's like that kind of vibes when people are like obama won racism is defeated it's over and like it, it, people act like that but like reality is it's like absolutely not casteism is kind of rife everywhere mm -hmm. and casteism is built into a little sect of like the way things work so that's kind of how that works. But regarding the movie itself, its genesis is in the very specific Telugu-speaking region in South India, where there was one state. It was called Andhra Pradesh. Andhra is the place. Pradesh essentially means place or state. Andhra Pradesh. And what happened was, a few years back in the mid-2010s, they divided the state into, you know, a state called Andhra. And, like, you had another state formed called Telangana, which was a long-fought, you know, struggle like that state being formed was a long movement and one of the key figures of that sort of movement was Komaram Pim who's you know one of the figures in the movie right and the other figure in the movie Sita Ramaraju is like the Andhra figure so essentially the movie as Rajamoli tells it began with the idea of watching this one state become two states both 
speaking essentially the same languages, but like the same language, but like in different dialects for the most part. Mm-hmm. And trying to make a movie to kind of like showcase their unity essentially. And so Telangana symbol being Pim and like Andra symbol being Ram, and their sort of like imagined constructed brotherhood on screen as a way of like symbolizing that sort of imagined friendship and unity of the states. Mm-hmm. And this is framed through sort of like you know, Roger Rowling's big sort of mythic influence where, like, he grew up reading, you know, some directors, like, if you're in America, you grew up reading, I don't know, some Spider-Man comics or, like, Batman comics or stuff like that, right? Because those are American pop culture. But, like, for someone like Roger Rowling, he grew up on Amar Shitra comics, which are, like, essentially, Amar means immortal, Shitra means, you know, picture, Kata means story. So, immortal picture stories. He grew up on those comics, mm-hmm. which are largely about retellings of, like, Hindu mythology and like okay. stories about gods and like demigods and figures like that. So those kind of informed his work. And so and he, that's you see that evidently his prior film, most evidently there in Bali, which is two parts and it was a huge thing a few years back. Mm-hmm. But you also see it here where like his mythic influences and like all of those filter into the film where, you know, Ram is framed at the end of the movie, like the mythic Ram god. Right. You know. And Peem is like almost framed in the context of like in the film of like Peem from the Mahabharata. So there's a lot of stuff like that where it's like you see his influences. And the way the film works is essentially it's a big rallying cry. It's like celebratory and nationalistic. But the problem is in the way it is. It, see, this is interesting because like when you see a movie like this, like you when the West first discovered RRR, the response was largely kind of like almost built in like a sort of hyperbolic reaction, like, oh my God, this is the greatest movie I've ever seen. I've never seen anything like this. There's a tiger yeah. and like, you know, it's kind of like over the top response. Right. And also there's the kind of like, and I think that there's a certain, I understand that on a certain level because like, when you look at Hollywood, what all of these movies are made in is a sort of like white Western hegemony. And so mm-hmm. everything kind of exists and comes out through that mechanism and that machine that means certain kinds of films just don't get made there or films that do sometimes get made are kind of exceptions. So when you see something where like, you know, the British and like the white people are kind of largely treated like the way, you know, say Indiana Jones treats the Nazis. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh my God, this is so cool. This is kind of like radical and like all of that because like this is anti-colonial, this is anti-imperialist. But the reality is when you look at post-colonial societies and post-colonial nations, what happens is like, when they're taken over and inflicted with all that they're inflicted with across time and when the oppressors kind of like left and there's the independence what's left is the sense of like there's a kind of hole of like what we were what we became and who we are and what we are going to be and so there's their sense of a lost past but a lost what we could have been that is sought and seen and so a lot of the times it's with stuff like that that nationalism is built and when there's a when you're a colony and when you're oppressed mm-hmm. that sort of nationalism is a very powerful revolutionary radical act to like you know fight against the oppressor right but after the oppressor's gone and like decades have passed on and like it's almost been a century right mm-hmm. that nationalism can sort of take on a different sort of flavor or fervor like mm-hmm. it can feel a bit different because like at that point it's kind of all internal machinations and politics Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what you're dealing with because like the Hindu nationalism and Hindutva that animates a lot of the stuff that you see now about India and rooted in India, mm-hmm. it goes back to the early 19th century when India was still occupied by the British, where like, you know, the Hindu right wing figures like 
literally went over to like Mussolini's Italy and like toured all of that fascist nonsense and were like, yeah, you know, this is pretty fucking cool. We should like, we should get into this. And so it's kind of like taking from that and like combining it with like the worst aspects of like old school Hinduism. And you get this very right wing ideology, which forms the RSS, which is a stupid death cult of like fascist idiots. And that cult is what, what the members of that cult is the person that killed and shot Gandhi. And so that cult got banned very early on for ages, but later on in the, in the 20th century, what happened is essentially you have figures like, I think it was exactly the 1980s when like the RSS kind of came back and like, you know, made a kind of big thing and they made a party called the BJP. Mm-hmm. And then the BJP would slowly grow. And, you know, now it's kind of it kind of runs the country, much like the RSS runs everything. It's they're bigger than ever, and it's it's kind of a distressing affair. Mm-hmm. But yeah, back to the movie. It, it kind of is. It's very much a status quo movie in the sense of like the most average, you know, MCU or like an American blockbuster is kind of like it. it you don't go to these movies for radical politics, right? Right. Because like. In the context of a film like this, even though for a Western audience, this might seem radical because it's like, you know, all the white people are not kind of gray and, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like anti-colonial, anti-imperialist. The reality in the context of post-colonial societies is like, when you look at a film like this, being anti-imperialist and anti-colonialist can still very much be a conservative position as opposed to a radical position when you're dealing with places where like nationalism and all of that is used to serve right wing purposes. Mm-hmm. Right, because again, like on the surface, just for like a, you know, average American viewer watching this movie, it's like, wow, here's a big fun spectacle with music and dancing and over the top action. And it's got these themes of anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism and also friendship. And the British people are the bad guys. Friends defeat imperialism together, right? Yeah. 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 So it's just like, again, the first time I saw it, I was just like, woohoo, I'm cheering in the Mm -hmm. theater. I'm having so much fun. And then you know, I started to do some digging about the like context uh, from which this movie comes out. And as you outline in your Vox piece, and um, there's another piece you wrote. Yeah. One of the words that you use in your Vox piece that really stuck with me is that this movie decontextualizes a lot of history, Yeah, yeah. which I mean, seems absolutely true. And also does it under sort of false pretenses because if you don't know the history it does seem like either this is made up if you're not familiar with the figures or Mm -hmm. you're receiving some sort of grand historical epic context because we were we we just covered um the woman king as well and there's a uh not not a similar issue, but a historical figure who is represented as being abolitionist who absolutely was not. Yeah. But that's how it's presented in the movie. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, you know, and this is like a issue with historical epics across everything. Yeah. But uh, that's often about as far as people will, you know, take an interest. And so yeah. this movie breaking through with this specific viewpoint, it's a bit scary. Right. Um, Because um, you talk in your piece about how there's a lot of Indian media that, again, is coming out in this pro-Hindu, is it pronounced uh, Hindutva? Hindutva, yeah. Which is this political ideology that is like reinforced by militant groups that's just like 
pro-Hindu, anti-Islam. That it's the idea that it, it's the idea that India is essentially a Hindu state and should always be a Hindu state, and it's kind of just it, it's repellent. Right, which and it's and it's leading to you know extreme oppression and violence toward Muslim people who live in India, yep. and then it's also reinforcing the caste system, which is you know a very elitist and oppressive system. Yeah, um, the idea of a hierarchy, which is kind of always there, mm-hmm. and it's interesting. It's like you look at this film, and because we're you know we we are on the Bechdel cast, so let's talk about that aspect of it. I'm not <laughs> sure this movie actually passed the Bechdel test because, like, this movie is rife with a male centrism that is, like, oh, very yeah. indicative of Rajamali's work. Mm-hmm. And, like, and in fairness to him, I think it's also just indicative of, like, the kind of space he emerges from, so it's not just specific to his work, but definitely the movie is a glaring display of, like, limitations in that sense. Because you look at the female characters in the movie and it's, like, it's Jenny, and, you know, it's Sita. Right. And both of them are kind of just framed in relation to these men. And kind of all they do is kind of in service of the great man story. Like, I remember recently there was a great interview of The New Yorker, you know, conducted by Simon Abrams mm-hmm. with Roger Moley, the director. Mm-hmm. And Roger Moley completely unprompted brings up the fact that he loves Ayn Rand and, like, the Fountainhead and shit like that. Yeah, yeah. I read that. And suddenly everything kind of makes perfect sense. It's like, it, it fits. And, like... I think that kind of helps contextualize for a Western audience in some regards. Yeah. I, I So I've been to multiple screenings of this movie where yeah. SSR was like there to do a Q&A. It's when he, um, yeah. he was coming to the U.S. a lot to campaign for like awards to like yeah. try to get nominated for Oscars and stuff like that. It worked. And so I've seen him in the flesh four times, um, brag, and people would always ask like they would try to like get him to say that this was like a political film making political statements. And he would always refuse to say that. And, and at one point he was like, Oh, um, some of my influences in like American cinema are Mel Gibson. And I was like, no, oh, I was there for that one. You're like, Oh, okay. We're having such a nice time. So goofy. Um, I'll say this other thing in that interview, in that very same New York interview, he talks like, okay, so his dad is a screenwriter, right? That's mm-hmm. kind of how he broke in. His dad was a screenwriter, established screenwriter. He got him work and like, that's how he broke into the industry and did all of that. So his dad is a seasoned screenwriter and he's currently working on a big RSS movie for this fascist stupid death cult oh, that, you know, oh. runs every, he, so the dad who wrote RRR, Koro, you know, worked on RRR with yeah. him because like Roger Mull, every movie Roger Mull makes is mostly with his dad, mm-hmm. that dad and his writer and closest collaborator is working on this RSS movie for the RSS hired by them. And having done research and work on that movie, he came out of it with a very favorable view towards this organization. And when asked about this, Roger Mulley in that interview was like, well, I don't really know what the RSS is, but I read the script and I cried and it's an amazing script and it's so emotional and it's, it would be a beautiful movie. And it's kind of like, that's where the exact moment of like, okay, one, Saying he does not know much about the RSS is like total bullshit in the context mm-hmm. in the modern India he lives in. That's kind of just disingenuous. Right. right. I was and like, that two, sounds like a lie. <laughs> yeah. And like, too, it's kind of like it, it lays bare the bullshit of like, I am a political filmmaker. Like, no, even what even your supposed quote unquote apolitical stance is a clear political stance because his stance is essentially 
a bare minimum basic status quo affirming stance. And the thing about the status quo affirming stance is, is that like it largely affirms the systems and the way things are as opposed to any actual radical change. Mm -hmm. It doesn't actually have an imagination to imagine beyond what it is. It can only see what has been. Right. Yeah. That's something I've I've read that New Yorker interview as well and it's really interesting it that and and that you um mentioned that about seeing SSR speak in person Caitlin where it does seem like any time he is confronted with a political question there's this tendency to be like well I'm just an entertainer which is definitely right. a uh pattern that I uh, recognize in people who are clearly making political stuff, but don't want to necessarily label themselves as such. Because that even that Ayn Rand question, he says, I understand parts of her philosophy, but that goes over my head when she gets into it. I'm not such a deep thinker. I'm more of a dramatic thinker. So I like the drama part of it. And it's like, yeah, but you know okay yeah it's the, it, it's the essential like decontextualize it's the idea of decontextualizing something and making it pure character drama but you got he i think he does not seem to realize or maybe he doesn't he's not you know willing to admit it openly that you can't really decontextualize certain ideas and certain fantasies mm -hmm. from their nature when you're you know the, the, his essential problem and it's a problem that you'll see across his work is that this he takes things and you know presents them but he never actually critically engages with them or is like hey maybe wait a minute what does this actually mean what does this right. choice or what does me packaging or representing this kind of thing implicate he does not really think about that he's just like wow cool <laughs> right there's no interrogation of yeah. oppressive structures and systems that he has to be yeah. well aware exists even though he's yeah having deniability about it so like the thing with RRR is that it's not like obviously and outwardly hateful toward marginalized groups in India, such as Muslims and people who belong to lower castes, but it is centering and uplifting already privileged groups of people and subtly, or maybe not so subtly, promoting this existing Hindutva ideology because as you say in your Vox piece, there's a number of Indian films that have come out just over the decades that frame a Muslim character as like the evil villain. Or 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 more likely, like there's things like the Kashmir Files, which are just blatantly like vile evil and kind of like, this is, you can't even stand to watch this fucking frame of it. It's like, it's so wild and heinous. Mm -hmm. It's kind of just disgusting and repugnant on site. And that's like a very clear far right wing extremist film, but like something like RRR is, I think, something like it's a much more it's a quote unquote liberal film, and that you have you know Muslims, but like or even when like Kim is kind of like portrayed as a Muslim, it's, he's kind of like the simpleton or like mm -hmm. it's very much the idea of like it's liberal and that like everybody and everything is subservient to this sort of like the super Hindu hero, which is kind of Ram, like right. Everything is kind of like. There's the hierarchical perspective is kind of what it highlights, even as it does not necessarily want to demonize anybody, if that makes sense. Right. Exactly. Yes. That's that's what I mean, the status quo. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And another example is Beam is an indigenous person in real life, and yeah. the character is indigenous and comes from the Gond tribe. And yeah. uh, the movie kind of like rewrites who that character was. Um, yeah. Komaran Beam 
was a well-educated person who could read and write, but the movie mm-hmm. paints him as this sort of like uncivilized simpleton along with the entire community he comes from. Yeah, like at the end the end of the movie, right, the big sort of like climax has him ask Pete, you know, this figure for like the gift of education when like in reality, Pete was an educated man. I think that kind of is illustrative of like the sort of hierarchical view the movie has and presents, which is kind of like the baked-in casteism of like Roger Mullis films. You'll see again, you know, if you watch Bahubali, which is the big, you know, mythological blockbuster film, mm-hmm. and the casteism is kind of also rife there. So that it's the hierarchical perspective, the idea of like hierarchies and who gets to be on that, and the way stereotypes derive from that perspective. Mm-hmm. That's what you see here, right? It does, yeah. And and like, if we are viewing this as a uh, propaganda film to some extent it's very effective because you don't really realize it's happening it's not good propaganda if it feels like propaganda (laughs) right it's kind of like you know a lot of american blockbusters right like the politics you're like you kind of just accept that they're going to kind of be fucked in a lot of ways like you watch top gun and like i was just gonna say top gun (laughs) Hawkins yeah. a fun, cool movie. It's like a fun sports movie. Like the first one is a fun sports movie. And the second one's about like dads and sons and stuff. And it's fun. But like, if you stop for a second to think about it, it's like, yeah, you know, this is really fucked American imperialist propaganda. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's bought and paid for by the American military. Like Top Gun invented that whole yep. system. Yep. <laughs> and I mean, that's certainly not what everyone I know thought the first time they saw Top Gun. And, and the numbers sort of bear that out there was like a spike yeah. in air force after that yeah absolutely i guess um this is maybe an extremely oversimpl uh, like overly simplistic question but for our listeners um what do you feel are kind of the most glaring um oversimplifications or changes that rajmuli makes to history um for the for the sake of this movie well, definitely the one I mentioned about him and like yes. mm-hmm. not being educated, having to ask for the gift of education from a sort of Ram who is presented as like the more tragic, you know, Pim is not afraid of the interiority of like Ram. If you watch the movie, Ram is like this complex, tragic figure, burdened and like all of these things. Mm-hmm. Whereas Beam kind of isn't afraid. Beam is kind of like a simpleton who's kind of in response and reaction to the great complex figure of Ram. And so there's definitely that aspect of it. You also get um, a long sequence of Rom's backstory and you get no information about Beam's backstory. The movie doesn't care to contextualize his character. Yeah, that's, it's it's the thing of like everything and everybody kind of becomes subservient to the story of this great figure. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of very much like that. And it's interesting because like, I look at this film and, there's a lot of it is about like people talk about history and like history isn't just an assembly of facts, right? History is something that is constructed over and over and over again and how it is presented, how it is like built and curated. And that's kind of like, when you look at the end credits of this film, it is very much a specific curation of history with the historical figures it chooses to show. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, yes. it'll on the, you will not see, you know, Ambedkar in the, in the end of the film, who's a legendary Dalit activist and is kind of like the father of the Indian constitution and possibly the greatest Indian figure that like the West probably should know over Gandhi, but somehow Gandhi is the one people know. Anyway, but like, you don't see figures like that, but you will see, I don't know, Shivaji in those credits. And like, it's baffling because like Shivaji was like, had nothing to do with fighting against the British. Like that was kind of after his time. But the guy is kind of now a figurehead 
in like the modern kind of Hindu discourse. So like he's in there, it, it's very much a kind of like, I'm not being political, but I also, I, I totally am by just like just curating things. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of it is by omission versus by explicit rewriting. It is both a product of like being a very uncritical and unthinking creator and artist. And at some points, like when the guy says, oh, I don't know much about the RSS or anything, that's sort of dishonesty. Right. 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 Because when he's backed into a corner, you just have to start lying at some point. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Also, in the end credits, uh, he omits a number of Muslim revolutionaries, uh, revolutionaries from castes that are considered to be, quote unquote, lower omits secular revolutionaries also to add to another aspect of the film i think it's interesting like one of the things that i found people were really calling to is just the idea of like oh this film finally portrays like you know these white brits as like the total bad guys and like absolute monstrous caricatures or like the nazis and indiana jones are like you know these terrible monsters mm-hmm. and that as being a radical choice and like being something very cool but what i found fascinating and telling is that like the movie's conceptualization and presentation of whiteness is so simplistic. So it's very much all the white people are bad. And then there is this one white person who is good in Jenny, as opposed to actually thinking or reckoning with the idea of a complicity and system and like Jenny as complicit and the privileges she gets for being who she is and her relation to that. It's kind of never really, the movie has no conception of that. It's just simple. There's good there's that. It's, it's yes. that simple idea. So there's not much actually radical or interesting things. It doesn't actually think in terms of systems or complicity. It just thinks in terms of like these sole individual figures doing things. And it's kind of, it's the limitation of both Roger Mulley and the film. Right. Yeah. I, at the end when like Beam reunites with Jenny and everyone claps in the theater every time, I'm just like, what are we clapping for? This woman is so complicit. Like her family are literally she the, the governor's bad guys. Niece. Like she's yeah. She lives in the palace with these imperialist colonizers. Like what what are we celebrating here? Yeah. It's the case of like a film not really having capacity to think or like really do anything. It's kind of just a very simplistic piece of work in that sense. Not that every, you know, big super action blockbuster needs to, you know, really reckon with complicity and avoidance all of that in this but like if you're actually saying this is radical i think it has to actually be radical as opposed to like be you know really simplistic mm-hmm. right yes i wanted to ask about because this stuck with me the first time i saw this movie the disclaimer at the beginning of the movie is really intense yeah. and 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 pretty long and it's i mean like like going in with little to no context you're like ooh, what is this like this feels defensive i wonder what like this is kind of going up against but you know like this film, apart from showcasing the culture and geography of India, doesn't imitate or imply any person, whether living or dead, doesn't indicate any race, caste, creed, or tribe. Any resemblance whatsoever is purely coincidental. The producer, the director, or the technicians of the movie have no intention whatsoever of hurting anyone's sentiments or disrespecting any traditions or maligning the beliefs of any individual or group. Yeah. Uh, what do you make of that? <laughs> I just think it's kind of like, it's indicative of like a film, rather, isn't it? It's kind of like this don't think of this as anything except cool character drama guys don't think of this as anything meaning anything it's like it's not political i'm just a cool dramatist mm-hmm. right like don't yell at me i'm not doing anything bad and it's like yeah well 
you are though um and i still oh i can't not love this movie like i it's I it's, it's a fun time it's a fun movie and like i think that's okay it's just the case of like you can like like i love top gun and i love top gun maverick and like the key is knowing hey these are fun movies about like fathers and sons and like cool sports action shit but also like it's kind of fucked and like you kind of have to like live with that complexity that's art the i mean the whole ethos of our show is you're allowed to love whatever you love just be critical of the media you consume yeah just think and that's what we're doing <laughs> which yeah. you'd think but uh you know most people don't do it and this make this i've been thinking so much about just historical epics in general it makes me want to go back and revisit more of them because ben there's Hur? just no i'm kidding <laughs> oh my god I, yeah, I, that's actually a big influence on the guy not is it? I, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> I mean, because they're whatever the historical genre, and I think I would put this movie in that category for at least big chunks of the movie. And almost every single time, they uh, have a very loose grasp on history and are often sort of the only um, yeah. interaction that a lot of people have with the um, with the history at all. Yeah, and it's interesting because, like, you look at art right art is art's purpose isn't exactly you know to recreate history necessarily but it's the case of you judge art on the merit of like okay what is this trying to say and what is this constructing and what is this construct for and what is it meaning so even if it isn't necessarily historically accurate you look at okay what is this trying to tell me yeah and you judge it on that merit and like i think a lot of the films kind of when they do construct history they kind of struggle with not thinking certain things through and that's kind of where the pitfall is but if you actually think things through and like can do something with it i think you're kind of like more okay with that yeah absolutely this is my my last question but i I guess, yeah, with, with any historical epic, it's like, well, why are we choosing this story to produce on such a large scale at this moment? Do you have an opinion on that of why SSR would choose this story in this moment? Yeah, I definitely like to go back to the original point. He talked about the genesis of the film being this, you know, the separation of those two states. And, and like, so I kind of understand why, because like in Andhra, Ram is kind of a big figure who's known, like you'll see if you go around a street, you will see like big, you know, statues of the guy around the streets and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so, and Bhim is a huge figure for that film kind of movement. So there's a kind of sense of like, oh, he would, of course he would make that movie. And that kind of makes sense, especially because there was a tradition of like having made films on, you know, Ram before. There's a big classic movie based on Ram too, before, like ages ago, starring a big iconic star back in the day. So mm-hmm. it's not new essentially. Mm-hmm. So oh, he's just kind of part of that tradition and making films in that mode. And like, even the interesting thing is like, you look at a lot of Telugu cinema and like, there is a lot of it that draws on mythology and constructs and frames its heroes or figures through that divine lens or like frames them akin to gods and stuff like that. So he is part of that lineage and tradition. Mm-hmm. So I think, there's a sense of oh of course he would make this movie like it makes sense to me in that sense but then you hear something like yeah we're working on rrr2 now and like we're like we're working on a script and you're like but why though why 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 why?" it's kind of baffling yeah who's that gonna be about um right yeah i mean i i wasn't able to find a lot of information on it outside of just like anytime something is successful they're like do it seven more times but it's like this is these are these were people (laughs) like what are you what are you uh intending to add everything is ip now (sighs) truly um do you have any final thoughts anything else you'd like to share 
on the film itself, the way I think about it is just like, it's a fun movie. And I think people can like have whatever feelings they have about it, but it's just the case of like, I would like people to just think through and like, kind of like understand what they're watching and kind of, if anything, see the saddest thing about the movie for me was just like watching people watch this and kind of watching the response going, man, people really know nothing about Indian cinema at all, huh? Because like we're, India is a huge country with like hundreds of languages and each state is almost unto a nation of itself in the sense of like each state has its own language, its own like whole thing. Yeah. And it's kind of like, it's it's comparable more to Europe in the sense of like, it's a big thing as, as opposed to just one, you know, thing that's like, it's a hugely diverse place. And there's like almost 20 industries that are separate for each language to make separate movies in those languages mm -hmm. and there's a rich long tradition of movies in all of them and I was really struck by the idea of like wow people know nothing about this and it was kind of like so if I have any last thing it's I guess just like I would like people to explore Indian cinema more and just like rather than going okay I watched this and then kind of I would like people to like engage with and like see more movies in general and kind of like I don't know develop a taste a sense for it as opposed to just kind of like making this a one-hit thing Right. I would like people to watch more movies, period. Do you have any recommendations of films to check out that don't like uphold a troubling status quo the way that RRR does? Well, so the interesting thing is I've really been liking this sort of recent Tamil movement. The Tamil film industry has recently in the few years seen a movement of like Dalit filmmakers and like artists who have been making their own art. Mm -hmm. And so I would really recommend people check out stuff like that. So like P.A. Ranjit and folks like that have been doing some interesting work. I would say definitely check that out. Okay. And that's an interesting perspective. And like, that's a lot of like, I think where a lot of future stuff is going. But yeah, mostly I would say I, I want people to understand and like engage with film across the board because there's so much cool history to film beyond just the sort of like, okay, there's like America and then in dialogue with America because of monster movies and samurai movies, there's Japan and then there's Hong Kong. As opposed to just kind of that, it's kind of like, let's kind of fully grasp with that. Mm -hmm. Cool, yeah, I'm going, I have a subscription to Z5, mm. which is a streaming service for anyone who doesn't know, is I think dedicated specifically and primarily to Indian film and TV. So I have access to a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ritesh, thank you so much for joining us. This has been such a delight. And thank you for your work too. I yeah. It was incredibly useful and I'm I'm very glad that you're doing it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Of course. Where can people um check out more of your work and follow you online, all that good stuff? Yeah, so I'm at Ritesh Writer pretty much everywhere. And you can find me there and I have a newsletter, I guess you can subscribe to that, though I haven't written more since my RRR piece. RitheshBabu.com is my website. So if you want to hit me up, that's where you do it. And that's kind of it. Amazing. Cool. Thank you again so Thank much for so joining much. us. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Yay. Once again, we wanted to thank Ritesh Babu for coming on the show, giving us some context, and giving us better insight into the movie. That was so awesome. Very helpful. We, I, I like to, I mean, we like to at least try to be honest about our biases in watching movies and what we, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And um, 
even after I saw RRR with you, Mm -hmm. I read his work like that night and it was so, so helpful. And I don't know. Yeah. It was really cool for him to come on the show. Definitely. Look at us praising a man. Sickos. Um, (laughs) Okay. And, and, and now uh, return to (laughs) business, which is. With that historical context in mind, mm-hmm. um, let's talk about the characters. Let's talk about the relationships mm, in the movie. Yes. Shall we start with the representation of women? <laughs> Ever heard of it? It's it's bad. <laughs> it's bad. Uh, here's what I'll say. It's not it's good. It's not good at all. Honestly, I, it was it was pissing me off. Um, yeah. But in at least different flavors of not good. But I did. There was repeated anytime. Uh, man was talking to or about a woman it was stuff like wait i kept writing it down anytime rom talks to sita he says one thing and he's like you're you're my strength babe yeah. like he's like, wait what is he like i am fighting for freedom and you are my strength mm-hmm. and like that is how men view women uh, sita my courage has always been my strength but your courage will help me succeed um it's just a very yeah. it's very reductive <laughs> of sita but we also see ram's father discuss ram's mother in that way exactly yes saying that oh she is my courage she is my strength which you know, I think it's interesting because it's like, that sounds good, but it also right. inherently <laughs> implies inaction. It implies like, you hold down the fort while I go do man stuff. Exactly. Is like truly what it yeah. is, where he's just asking her to, and not to say that that is unimportant or valueless work. It's not, but it's very, I think, very gender essential <laughs> to be like, Definitely. all right, you're my strength. If you weren't my my fucking wife like i couldn't kill all these guys or whatever the fuck you know I, right. it's just very traditional view of gender right and i know that that happened historically because of gender roles and patriarchal but nothing values. in this movie happened so right, you right could, you like, could like, as we just talked about for an hour this movie <laughs> doesn't have much of an interest in being historically accurate so it does feel right. like a modern decision like that that was a 20 whatever 2020 whatever decision to Mm -hmm. sideline women in this way yeah women don't exist to be men's inspiration and source of strength exactly i mean but there are like slightly different i mean honestly the only women that we get to know are sita kathy and (laughs) kathy jenny um so Three very different women, uh, which, and let's sideline Kathy for a second. The two women we are supposed to like are Sita and Jenny. Right. Sita, for the most part, like we were just saying, she is waiting. She is waiting. She's waiting. She's waiting for Ram to come home. She's reassuring everyone. Ram's got this. Um, Towards the end, she does get some stuff to do. I noticed that Sita and Jenny both iconically do one One thing. thing. Yes. Uh, Sita's one thing is that she thinks really quickly when police um, raid the space where she uh, has just met Beam and Molly. Yeah. And she says that someone has what disease? Smallpox. Smallpox. Yes. So she says uh, that someone has smallpox and the police get the fuck out of there. And that is like her active, her one thing to protect someone else, which is great for sure it's one thing in three hours but (laughs) but it's great and then jenny's one thing happens in montage from what i could tell uh but the one thing jenny does Mm -hmm. is she gives 
beam uh, map. Yeah, so like that he knows where to, to rescue. Barracks. Which is, I think, the only time we see her be like explicitly rebellious towards yeah her family we'll get to her in a second but yeah like they both do one one thing thing. and the thing that sita does is accompanied by some violence Mm -hmm. and so i wanted to bring up the kind of use of violence in this movie which there is a lot of this is a violent action movie yes but violence is used to brutalize women in this movie in a way that it's generally not used to brutalize men with a few exceptions that I'll get to. But there's the scene where Sita like does this quick thinking and she's like, Oh, someone has smallpox. And then she is violently kicked by a British officer. Mm -hmm. There's another scene early on where Male's mother is struck on the head. We mentioned that one already. Both are moments of brutal violence that sort of seem to imply like, look how weak and helpless these women are. Mm. While when men do violence in this movie, it's like exciting action sequences. With a few exceptions that I can think of, all involving Beam, such as the scene where Beam is brutally beaten by that one officer who brings his motorcycle to the mechanic shop, uh, as well as the scene where Beam is flogged publicly by Rom, Mm. which as we've discussed, Beam is treated differently from Rom, where unlike Rom, Beam is not elevated to this like godlike status. He's not given a backstory. All these different things that like create this like imbalance between these two characters who we are supposed to like who are supposed to be equally important, but Rom is like elevated in this particular way. Right. Probably because Beam is indigenous and indigenous people in india at this time i'm not sure if this is still true today again i only have a pretty peripheral understanding of the caste system but this was definitely true at the time that indigenous people exist outside of the caste system because they Mm -hmm. are considered to be below brahmanical supremacy which is the ideology that dictates the hierarchy and elitism of the caste system so i think because beam is indigenous and i know we're talking about the women and i am sidetracking and talking no 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 this is important about beam but i just wanted to like point out the ways in which marginalized people such as women and indigenous people the way violence is handled with them Mm. versus when like rom is doing violence it's like look at this fucking awesome superhero and like all of his cool action well yeah that takes uh that takes me back to what we were talking about um in our interview where it was presented that beam was not an educated man Mm -hmm. and he was right in real life he was serves the purpose of this story to downplay that and and Mm -hmm. and and an exchange that i didn't remember to bring up was at the end one of the last interactions maybe the last interaction that ram and beam have clearly establishes like ram is the guy which the political implications of that is Mm-hmm. beam at the end is like i want you to teach me like mm-hmm. that is so he like they don't really end as equals which is so weird mm-hmm. because the whole thing is that they're holding each other's hands and it looks like that <laughs> fucking meme where it's like yeah but it's like <laughs> the, it, the the power dynamic between them is actually 
always a little uneven mm-hmm. because it's implied that Rom has an education and Beam does not. Rom is bilingual. Beam is not. Mm-hmm. Like there's all of these things that always give Rom like quote unquote the edge right. over Beam. And it doesn't nullify their friendship, but it does. But the movie still sort of ends with that being the case where Beam is like, I want to be your student, Rom. And it's like. And the movie ends with, yeah, Beam saying like, teach me to read and write. And then Rom writes a phrase on a flag, the real life historical figure, Komaram Beam. That was his saying like that was his like ah! <laughs> and but instead it has ramaraju like this movie attributes that phrase to him the phrase is jal jangle zamin i'm sure i'm not pronouncing that uh, correctly but it translates in english to water forest land Got and it. it makes sense that an indigenous person would value <laughs> those things and have that be their slogan for freedom uh, but instead this movie tribute attributes like the coining of that phrase or that slogan to Rom. Also, there's a scene in the movie where Sita is explaining to Beam why Rom went into the police force. And Beam responds by basically saying, like, oh, my vision has been so narrow. Here I am only trying to save one person, but Ram is trying to start this whole big revolution. Like his scale is so much grander than mine. And then Beam says, the tribal that I am, I did not understand. So again, it's positioning Beam, this indigenous person, as being simple-minded and not able to see the bigger picture, which is just so insulting and reductive to characterize an indigenous person in that way. Do not like. Um, all right, back back to back to the gals. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so Sita, yes, I think that Sita is presented as kind of your classically um, virtuous. It's it almost it it is like a. a you know, woman waiting for her man to come home from war kind mm-hmm. of character. Uh, she does get to do one thing. She is subjected to violence immediately. And, and I totally agree with what you're saying. There is like the violence is to demonstrate that they that like they need that, men to protect them kind of thing. They cannot protect themselves. Mm-hmm. And then we have Jenny, who has a whole different set of issues. I mean, I just like. I don't know. I mean, Jenny and Sita are written very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, Jenny, as we discussed, I think it is a big weird problem that like she is so, I don't even know. It's like whatever the level above complicity is. Like it feels like too simple to say that she's complicit. Yeah. Her aunt Kathy is, uh, on the other hand, yeah. like a full on fucking tyrant and is actively, I mean, there's that whole sequence when Beam is being beat by rom it's such a hard scene to watch yeah. where she keeps suggesting like more and more brutal weapons mm-hmm. to hurt him with. she just and has a spiky whip in her dress question mark and she's like here use this <laughs> oh, yeah i forgot she had it on her so she is obviously not the uh, top colonizer that's governor scott mm-hmm. but she is actively perpetuating violence against indian people the entire movie and is often suggesting to her husband to turn it up to an 11 mm-hmm. and make 
the violence even more brutal. So she is a very active character in the worst way, which as we were talking about, that is sort of one of the things this movie gets really right is like, and, and I think what is very striking to, I mean, all audiences, but I think Western audiences in particular, where we're, I think, kind of used to being asked to empathize with the colonizer or mm-hmm. to see that like even in modern movies to be like okay so colonization's obviously wrong but the way that the tone of this movie makes it completely possible for all of the colonizers to just be like cartoonishly like as cartoonishly evil as colonizers are yeah so it's like fun and cathartic totally though the movie she's the one exception of like white colonizer woman who doesn't get let off the hook because the movie lets all the other ones off the hook and the only other one we really get to know is jenny but like jenny there's that whole party full of people yeah that's exactly yeah like (laughs) which recontextualizes the party in a way you're like uh it's such a good dance scene but like what are we doing and yeah and like Um, all the all the white women are like let's dance along to the not too not too song and these men our boyfriends they feel threatened by these brown men and they're trying to compete against them right like every white woman is an ally (laughs) yeah and it's like well no that's not how that happened so yeah i appreciate lady buxton being in the movie and like depicted the way she was in a weird way because the racism and other prejudices that a lot of white women perpetuate should not be ignored or let off the hook, although yeah. they are too often. So I appreciate that this movie shows like, yes, like white women can be complicit and or actively perpetuating. Yes. Like just because you are not the most powerful person in the world right, does not mean that you do not hold a lot of privilege and cannot weaponize it against other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, fun fact, um, Lady Buxton is played by oh my gosh. Allison Duty, who is the Nazi woman from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So she is very good at playing evil white women. What an interesting life of typecasting. <laughs> like, yeah. um, wild. Yes. Okay. So back to Jenny. Back to Jenny. Okay, so like point well taken with Lady Buxton, I agree. But then also like Jenny undercuts that same thing. Right. Where Jenny is their niece. And it's I'm not saying that like it's within Jenny's power to dismantle colonialism. Like mm-hmm. that's an unreasonable expectation. However, I feel like she is presented because she is nice and because she is not actively individually perpetuating harm against individuals and has i think there's like two different instances one is when beam first sees her she tells off a police officer for beating someone for no reason Mm -hmm. and that is like her technically using her privilege for good because she has more clout than he does and so he stops good yeah and then the other time that we see jenny lightly lightly push against a system of oppression Mm -hmm. is when she brings beam back to the palace or the hat whatever the big the big man the big old place yeah colonial manor and Mm. an officer or a guard or a soldier what's the difference some guy (laughs) you know some guy assumes that beam is the help um yeah and Jenny says, fuck off, and then apologizes to Beam, mm-hmm. and they kind of move on. So it's like individually, 
sure, you know, she does the right thing in those moments, but right. I feel like those moments are illustrated of like, therefore, she is totally good and like, I don't know. I, I just thought that like yeah. her level of complicity was not examined in any meaningful way in a way that there was room in this movie to happen like and Mm -hmm. it seems like I know that Beam you know loves her but it seems like he is the sort of person because he is so smart and because he is so motivated to dismantle the colonialism that's affecting everyone he knows Mm -hmm. it seems like the sort of thing that he would want to talk about (laughs) so it's kind of like it feels like it it suggests that like women are so waifish and powerless that it's like not even worth the discussion to examine their complicity or like I don't really know what that decision was it felt a little out of step with who we know beam to be but the whole like beam rom-com section of the movie feels a little out of step with who beam is for the rest of the movie right (laughs) it's just like I don't know if it's suggesting like the attention of a woman softens him up a little bit for a while or something I don't know because see the kind of one point when the when the um tiger is attacking everybody he like puts Jenny in a car yeah who is dressed exactly like Belle from Beauty and the Beast in that moment she is (laughs) and she she's very Belle I mean she looks like Belle too yeah um but he I don't every time I see that scene and he puts her in the car and it's supposed to be like I will protect you yeah you're my gf now whatever mm-hmm. but he puts her in a car I'm like that could be that could be a kiss of death that could be so bad for her yeah that car could explode it like could. this I wouldn't want to be locked in a car in the middle of a war zone it just feels like you're almost more vul- more vulnerable than if you could move but right what do i know yes <laughs> hard to say um in any case with with the three main women that we get to know they are different enough i think sita and jenny have certain qualities in common such as passivity um and, and being... only being able to do one thing oh that's what i was gonna say there's that scene when beam is beating oh yeah there's another moment where like an indigenous character is being brutalized when Rom beats um, Lachu, Beam's brother, mm-hmm. he's like flailing his wep- his like stick around and his Classic bracelet boys. flies off. Yeah, <laughs> men be flailing their sticks around. <laughs> and his and Rom's bracelet flies off. And we get a flashback where we see like the significance of this bracelet because like Sita has the other half of it. And it's sort of like oh man they literally have like claire's necklaces on that are like best friends <laughs> <Yes>. literally <laughs> and he's like wait a minute i'm reminded that i have a girlfriend and maybe i should be conflicted about how i'm beating my fellow indian you know like it's just such a weird like the way the function of women in this movie is yeah just like to be passive They're- to be the like but also to represent purity and goodness yes. and non-violence and like can't we just stop fighting and you're like <laughs> and even with i mean molly is i feel like molly represents something similar to what the women of the story or at least sita and jenny represent which is like this is what we're fighting for that kind of like uh-huh. nationalistic and I guess Jenny doesn't actually really factor in there but like Sita I, and Molly I feel like definitely represent like this is why we do what we do for for the women which mm-hmm. is 
in any nationalistic uh, narrative, I feel like that always comes up. I mean, it certainly comes up in American media all the time. Um, it comes up in Mulan. Mm. They all want a girl worth fighting for, you yeah. know, and <laughs> it's yeah. a very common and it, and this movie doesn't challenge, challenge that. This movie, I mean, honestly, once, once you can get past the thrill of it, this movie doesn't challenge very much nope. outside of imperialism and colonialism, which is very important to challenge, obviously. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as we've discussed, it upholds the status quo in many other ways. The other thing I wanted to say about Jenny is oh, the, the meat cute scene the meat cute yes uh-huh. so there's this a really wild scene Ay-yay-yay. where so Rom is like I'll be your wingman beam oh you want to talk to Jenny okay so Rom grabs a handful of nails and throws them in front of Jenny's car to flatten her tires so that beam will have an excuse to talk to her Jenny, the scene is played so goofy. Weird. It's, it's an so extremely weird. goofy scene. Jenny is completely oblivious as to what is happening because she's driving her car, but she is not looking at the road. She's seen just like staring off at the distance, being like do do do. And then when Beam realizes what Rom did, like you would expect that reaction, his reaction to be something like what the fuck, dude? You can't just like throw nails in front of a woman's car to get her attention. But instead, Beam is like, thanks, bro. It was awesome that you did that. And Ram is like, yeah, it was pretty awesome that I did that. And Jenny is like, what happened? My tires are flat for some reason. <laughs> Literally, it is so like, it. it is, it seems like it's like almost like vaudevillian <laughs> in the way that it plays out. Because you're yeah. like, yeah, it, I mean, it is very weird that Beam is like, oh, cool. Thank you. And also, it doesn't seem like Beam really notices that Rom... Like, why can no one see that this is happening? And it also presents Jenny as being, like, not very smart and completely oblivious to the world around her. Because you could, like, as an audience member, you can feel... You can hear the nails fall to the ground. And the way she's driving is, like, she's not looking at the road. She's, like, looking at the clouds. (laughs) Like, they're just... They make her look like a... Like, she has, like two brain brain. cells yeah yeah like it which is again which is like doesn't feel like a very again it's i know it's a different film industry than we cover but it's like it it felt weird to me of like 2022 really right yeah a movie like i have no doubt that men did things like this throughout history because men are famous for doing uh scary things to get the attention of women but because this movie came out in 2022, you would think that there would be a more modern version of that, where at the very least, like if Rom is going to throw the nails, Beam would be like, what? You can't just be flattening women's tires, bro. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, this movie is takes so many creative liberties that I, in moments where it's like, no, I, I think that that is, I'm not saying that this is something that SSR has ever spoken to, or as far as I can tell, been asked about, because mm-hmm. it is like... This is very much our wheelhouse of like what we yeah. what we would talk to him about. But right. like, I feel like in big movies like this, this is a very broad statement and feel free to disagree. But like, it seems like it's only in moments like that that creatives will like 
who maybe are not very interested in telling women's stories or anyone but men's stories mm-hmm. will be like, well, that was the history. That's cr- that would that's historically accurate. Right. Like, yeah, you also had a guy like beat a tiger. Like, yeah, is why is this accurate? your stickler? <laughs> yeah, like, why is this, this the place that you are sticking to? Like, well, this is how it would have gone in this state, and you're just like, yeah. all right, okay. man, sure, fucking sure. And speaking of uh, not being interested in telling women's stories, <laughs> there are a number of women who fought for Indian independence, mm-hmm. though as per usual, their stories are usually not told. History tends to erase them and media about indian freedom fighters like rrr tends to focus on men and ignore women's contributions um yes i'm pulling from scholarly journal wikipedia of course hit it but just ready to learn just to name a few Pritalata Wadadar was a member of an indian republican army who died after leading a siege, a successful siege, Mm -hmm. on a European club in Chittagong. Mm -hmm. Sarojini Nadu was an Indian political activist and poet. She was a proponent of civil rights, women's emancipation, and anti-imperialist ideas. Uh, Rani Lakshmi Bey was a leading figure of the Indian Rebellion of 1857 and became a symbol of resistance to the British Raj for Indian nationalists. I don't know if that means the same thing as what I think it means, but maybe, I don't know. Anyway, um, and then there is um, Katsturba Gandhi, um, who was a political activist married to Mohandas Gandhi. And with her husband and son, she was involved in the independence movement um, for India. So those are just a handful. I'm sure there uh, were many more leaders of the movement. And then also just, again, women's contributions to a movement like this in general are still like crucial, but their stories are often never told, even if they weren't like leaders of the rebellion. Women were still doing shit and people often... Uh, ignore those narratives so yes and I feel like that is something that again it's like it's so tricky again we we just covered the woman king Mm -hmm. and it seems like there is just now there is some or more interest in portraying uh, women through history like this which I think is a really good thing and but then the tricky part of that is like okay I don't I don't know this is kind of a discussion for another day and this isn't about the woman king specifically but I always worry where it's like oh now we're gonna show like war heroes who are women and then it's like okay but are we gonna undo any of the really fucked up like narratives that happen in war movies and the glorification and the nationalism or are we just gonna leave that as is and now it's it, it's like a, a, a uh, I'm so sick of this phrase, but like it's like a girl bossy kind of thing right, of right, like, right, right. well, now we're going to show women perpetuating blah. Women like, can be warlords. <laughs> right. Oppressive warlords. Like, I don't know. That's a broad, just gut feeling that I, I feel like mm-hmm. we've seen that happen before in various genres. And now it seems like it may have been, become time for, for this genre. So it's interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't know. We're all, we're, you know, the, the world's going to explode in like 10 years. So Truly. hard to say. 
but uh, yeah, did you have any other uh, thoughts on uh, the women of the not the, the, on the women's? Um, but I do want to talk about uh, something that often gets discussed in movies about male friendship or where there are men who are friends, mm-hmm. which is everyone is like they're gay. <laughs> We've talked about this before on... It's like our Top Gun episode. Top Gun. Recently, right? We've talked about it, I think, on Fast and the Furious. We talked about it. It's like the Frodo and Sam from Lord of the Rings thing. Yes. Yeah. Where close male friendships are often perceived as having queer undertones because male platonic closeness is so foreign to people that when people see it, mm-hmm. they often ascribe a romantic or sexual component to it, which might be true for some male friendships but it's often like the default reaction where so many people who i know who saw this movie were like oh rom and beam like oh they're so gay for each other which like that being the default reaction it's such a complicated it's like an onion discussion because you right. don't want to be like no no they're straight, straight. Friends. <laughs> but also it's like they're yeah it's like i, I feel like that I don't know. It like, doesn't allow for the normalization of close platonic male friendship. Exactly. With, with any sexuality, like across right. the, the spectrum, like y- you should be able to have intimacy with your friend without it being implied as romantic. Right. And especially with men, again, like across the sexuality spectrum, men, I feel like the way men are generally socially conditioned globally with few exceptions mm-hmm. it makes it difficult or there is this like implication of you should be ashamed to have an intimate um, and I mean like emotionally intimate friendship right. with another man or often another person at all and because we right. you know of deep platonic friendships between men and women is also so always like oh you guys are oh. in love with each other and mm-hmm. it's like uh, nor Uh, And, like, the shift of this reaction, I think, has gone a bit from, like, oh, they're so gay, and isn't that gross? More to just, like, oh, there's two guys, and they're gay. And, like, did I want to see Beam and Rom kiss? Yeah, kind of. So it's complicated. But also... (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I think it's, like, I, I, I agree with what you're saying. It's, like, just normalizing a strong deep platonic friendship is like a worthy thing to do and i feel like this Mm -hmm. movie does it is is one of the things that this movie does very successfully the idea of like loyalty to your friend is an important thing i think that that's really nice i think Mm -hmm. it's good um oh also the the last thing i wanted to say was um anytime i think that like yeah in the movies that we grew up with and this doesn't really happen anymore except if it's like still happening on like network tv or something but anytime there's um you know two I, i'm thinking of like peak judd apatow movies where it's like anytime like men can be friends in those movies but they have to constantly qualify that they're straight anytime yeah. they experience a moment of like if they hug if they if they touch mm-hmm. they're like what no <laughs> like yeah. just totally no like kind of oh god what a what a distressing time <laughs> that was um, anyways not the case for Ram and Beam. They openly express their affection for each other by spending time together, by going on day trips, by, I mean, they are like 
physically expressive with the way they love each other mm-hmm. and also like because the tone of this movie is so soap opera mm-hmm. like these men are certainly emoting you don't see i think like a lot of western movies show like a male protagonist swallowing the pain and it mm-hmm. becomes a fucking brick in his stomach and you're like wow that's acting uh meanwhile rom is like Ah! yeah there's they're they're both crying at different points like this they're having emotions besides rage because like rage especially in like hollywood movies is like the only acceptable or like has been considered to be the only acceptable true emotion that men are allowed to express and feel but uh guess what everyone the full range of emotions is available to people of all genders everyone but also, Rom often expresses his emotions by punching a punching bag. So there's that. Um, do you have anything else you want to talk about? I don't really think so. Um, yeah, I, I think that, that that we've had a pretty comprehensive discussion. Also, listeners, especially our Indian listeners, we recognize that we've probably gotten some stuff wrong in this episode. We did our mm-hmm. best um, in terms of prep and, and all of that. Um, but we are very interested in what particularly our Indian listeners have to say about this. Um, yes, please. And just in general, because we always want to know what you think. Indeed. And tackling a, a big historical epic with which you are not familiar with the history can be kind of tricky so if yes. there's anything that we missed um please let us know and we will you know do do what we always do indeed but yeah i think that's all i've got uh same um does this movie pass the bechdel test no <laughs> there are a few small moments where women interact or female characters interact such as when um jenny gives molly a few gifts but yes. molly doesn't respond no <laughs> there's also a scene at the party where a lady says hey jenny jenny says hi maggie how's max i know maggie says god damn it oh he's great and jenny says wonderful Uh, i guess that hi jenny hi maggie but that's not it doesn't count yeah well because immediately she's like how's max and it's like who's max who cares like what do you anyway that's also with with jenny that's another way that jenny is shown to be kind is she's the only person who's kind to a child they've kidnapped you're like that's mm-hmm. not that's, that's not enough no. like, i don't know i think i'm pretty fra- I i bought our captive a dress and you're like fuck you yeah They're, anyways <laughs> <laughs> okay uh well let's move on to the perfect metric our nipple scale where we rate the movie on a scale of zero to five nipples based on looking at the movie through an intersectional (laughs) feminist lens um okay let me talk through this so on one hand this is a movie about indian people rising up against british oppression and imperial rule and colonization Mm -hmm. and obliterating it which is very cathartic to see and it's very exciting it's a fun movie and the music and the two men are so hot and well that's I... an intersectional feminist win <laughs> and and yes so those are the good parts of the movie <laughs> but as we've discussed it upholds the status quo of the current scary political climate of India and it's more or less serving as Indian nationalist propaganda And I also want to be clear, 
that our criticism of right-wing Hindu-centric Indian government is not a criticism of the Hindu religion. I'm sure our listeners understand that, but I just want to make that abundantly clear that we are criticizing oppressive, fasci governments and political ideologies. Yes. So the kind of like upholding of the status quo and which again is a a scary status quo along with the movie's treatment of women and indigenous people being very abysmal. I also wanted to point out that uh, again, Komaran Beam was an indigenous person of the Gond tribe. NTR Jr. who plays him is not a Gandhi actor so there's that um but then you see governor scott's blood splatter over the words the sun never sets on the british empire and you're like Woo! right it's i mean it, it is i think that like this movie is so unsubtle to its strength and its detriment yes and its strength is certainly like best shown with its attitudes towards imperialism and british colonialism Mm -hmm. and that all plays very well and but yeah in terms of it having propaganda qualities right if not just being propaganda it it is kind of um I don't know. Yeah, it is kind of freaky that like this it. movie can come to the come to a western audience and like it didn't register for I think a lot of western fans of this movie. For sure. Um and so bit scary. It is scary. Uh and it's complicated. Uh with all of that in mind, I think I'll give it uh, like one and a half nipples. Okay. I still love this movie. I'm I'm going to keep revisiting it knowing its issues and knowing its many problems um but as far as like entertainment value goes it's a 10 out of 10 on the rompometer oh i mean it's like seven movies in one it's pretty fucking cool so there's a lot to love about this movie but we also um as always we are going to acknowledge the things that must be criticized about any movie so 1.5 nipples um i'll give one to sita because i just wanted so much more for her she could have done two things she could have done two maybe even three now let's but let's let's, be reasonable i'll calm down that would be one thing per hour caitlin (laughs) i don't know that's too much um (laughs) uh and i'll give my half nipple to Male. Twink what's her name? Twinkle Twinkle Sharma. Sharma. Oh my gosh. What a name. Twinkle what a name Sharma. Indeed. Incredible. Um what say you, Jamie? Uh I I feel like I'm coming down kind of hard. Uh, I'm gonna give it one. Uh in terms again, entertainment value, gigantic. Do I enjoy watching the movie? Yes. The I mean, for kind of our classic Bechtel cast purposes, women are in no way centered and they're like you're saying, like in like there have been many women who have fought for freedom in India and uh, you know, this movie sort of casts a very wide, very broad, very familiar view of women as docile, domestic, Mm -hmm. waiting for men to get home. The reason we fight, certainly not the people who would be allowed to do anything. Mm -hmm. So in that way, I thought it was like a very kind of traditional view of gender. The way that Jenny's character is positioned as the one nice colonizer (laughs) Is, a little, is weird. I don't think that yeah. that's an intersectional win no. of any sort. 
And and also, I think that I'm coming down kind of hard on it because we've covered these historical epics recently. And in terms of intersectionality and, and no movie is going to get history exactly right. And it's not the duty of fiction movies to be documentaries. I'm not implying mm-hmm. that. But there is, I think, like our discussion today um, speaks to like when you get history so wrong or there's a lot of omission Mm -hmm. like that can perpetuate harm against marginalized communities which is what our whole contextual discussion was and so I feel and again I know that it's like I am not well versed in these issues at all I'm still a ton to learn and a lot of this is new information so if I'm coming down too hard I uh, apologize but from what from the information I have presently Mm -hmm. it just seems like this this movie gets history or willfully omits a lot of important history For sure. in a way that doesn't, you know, it, like erases a lot of marginalized communities mm-hmm. and uplifts some harmful status quos, yes. which a lot of movies do. But because, as, again, and like we talked about this in the Woman King episode too, when you involve actual historical figures, that's when it gets super, super, super messy. Yeah. And so that is sort of where I stand on that. Uh, it's a super fun movie to watch. <laughs> it's really exciting. Truly. I like, and the live viewing experience, someone threw a fucking like inflatable tiger at the screen. It was just like, it was a lot. <laughs> People get um, up and dance along with the not to not to scene. Like it's just an, uh, an electric viewing experience. It's intense. Yeah. I mean, and so it, for the movie going experience, it's fucking unbelievable. Like Rajmouli is an incredibly talented filmmaker, mm-hmm. but a lot of the writing is a bit concerning. And so yeah. I'm going to give it one nipple. I apologize if that's too harsh. And I'm going to give it to... Don't be sorry. I guess I'm going to give it to... I'll split it between Molly and her mom because it mm. is such a brutal two punch um opening scene and i'm glad that they are reunited i really thought that they killed her mom and i am uh, the movie is so long that sometimes i forget that she does live (laughs) between the beginning and the end well because you only see her in the opening sequence and then in the credit sequence like she yeah she gets brought back to screen after the movie has ended and they're playing like the big credit song and dance number yeah i'm just glad that molly um got to reunite with her whole family i think that that is very it's what she deserved Mm -hmm. um so yeah give it give it one nipple sorry and i love you happy birthday i mean i give it only a half nipple more than you so we're pretty much the same and but thank you it is my birthday why is media so complicated Um, well i'm covering minions rise of Gru for my birthday and we're gonna have a hell of a time Mm, oh wow yeah can't wait yep listeners that's our 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 thanks again to our guest Ritesh babu make sure to check out their writing and you can follow us hey hey you know what because it's my birthday you can follow me on social media whoa such as uh, unfollow me in observance of caitlin's birthday (laughs) yeah take your follow take your follow away from jamie and give it to me just (laughs) kidding we you you can follow anyone you want but especially me on my special day (laughs) 
Um, I'm trying to be more active on TikTok, which I don't know how to feel about. I'm less active on Twitter than I've ever been before, except to uh, convince people to cast me in Paddington 3, which is at the time of this recording, and we're recording pretty far out, but so hopefully this doesn't change by the time this episode comes out. But production on Paddington 3 is slated to begin in July. So there's still time to cast me. And then Instagram, uh, and I'm at all of those places at Caitlin Durante. Please follow me. You can also follow our Patreon, aka Matreon, at patreon.com slash backtillcast. Five bucks a month gets you a number of bonus episodes, and that number is two. I don't know why I put it like that. Um, and you also get two per month. Per month. And yes, you get access to, uh, I think, close to 150 back episode catalogs at this point. Mm-hmm. And then we'll be covering some of Caitlin's faves oh, on yeah. the Matreon this month. So check that out. You can also follow the Bechtel cast on Instagram and Twitter at Bechtel cast. And you can buy our merch at tpublic.com slash the Bechtel cast. Treat yourself to a little t-shirt, a little phone case, Just a little, a little pillow, whatever you want. <laughs> It's my birthday, so treat yourself. (laughs) In observance of the national holiday. Yes, yes. Wonderful. Okay, uh, well, there's the episode. We love you so much. Go have a nice springtime day. Do it. Oh, also, my book comes out next week. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Yes. Rod Dog, May 23rd. We're going to be covering it uh, in our, well, not the book. We're going to be covering Sausage Party next week. Sorry. Bye. (laughs) Bye. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated. We're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. Looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother Jonah. And we are so excited to have you hear the latest season of our nostalgia-themed podcast, How Did We Get Weird? Not only do you get to know me and my brother, you get to know the stories that made us the absolutely rad people we are today. Check out our episodes where we've welcomed hilarious guests like our friend Andy Samberg. That's it. That's really it. And Queen Casey Wilson. I really went cart before the horse. I said, I think I have an opportunity to interview Leonardo DiCaprio (laughs) as a high school student. And you do not want to miss out on our funny segments like (laughs) Change.Dork. Change.Dork. And congratulations. You played yourself. Congratulations. You played yourself. Listen to our podcast, How Did We Get Weird, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.